Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. I thank you for this time that we have to gather together around your word. I pray for your blessing on this time that we have. I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts. And I ask that um, we would be open and receptive to who you are and to all that you have done and to all that you have commanded us to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, when we began our study in Matthew all the way back in September, if you can remember that far back, there were two questions that were set before us. Who is Jesus and what is the only right response to him? And now here we are on our last day of study, and Matthew has boldly answered the question of who Jesus is. For 28 chapters, Matthew has been both proclaiming and showing us the true Jesus. When Matthew opened up his gospel, he did not wait to declare the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the one prophesied throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. He is the anointed one that was promised, the anointed king that would establish a kingdom. He is the one um, that people had been pouring over the scriptures, studying to seek to understand who this Messiah was going to be. They had been anticipating and looking for him. And Matthew opens up, in declaring immediately, this Jesus that I'm telling you about is that one. He is the one you've been looking for. You do not need to look any further. He is the one. He, said, he went on to say he is the son of David. The son of David that had been promised by God to David in 2 Samuel 7. God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Matthew declares that Jesus is the son of David, the one that God was speaking of, the one foretold that it was through Jesus that he would reign and his, uh, that Jesus would reign over his kingdom forever. He also said he is the son of Abraham. He is that ultimate son that was promised to Abraham that through Abraham God was going to bless all of the nations. So Jesus, the one that Matthew has been telling us all about, he is the king with all authority. He is has a kingdom of all nations, and all allegiance is due him. And we have watched as Matthew has unfolded that truth all the way throughout his gospel. Over 28 chapters, he is showing us, showing us what he had declared about Jesus in that opening sentence. And the question that silently runs through the gospel of Matthew is, what will you do in response to this Jesus? Matthew says, this is Jesus. This is who he is. He is the king. He has authority. He has a kingdom. How will you respond to him? And we saw through many of the passages that there were multiple responses from multiple different people. There are three basic responses that we saw throughout Matthew. One was there were people who would push him away run away from him. They wanted him near enough, but they were a little bit afraid. So there was not this surrendering to him. 
So they didn't quite buy all the way in. They were curious seekers, um, but in the end pushed him away or ran away in fear of him, which is still a rejection of him. Then there was the group of people that rejected him outright. They were seeking to destroy him. And in those two categories, we see the same responses today. When, when the biblical Jesus is told and, and preached and talked about, we see different responses today. The same responses we saw in Matthew. Some are intrigued and curious, but really don't want to surrender to him. They still keep him at arm's length. They don't want him a part of their life, and so they push him away, and they're fearful. Others are outright rebellious and seek to destroy him and anything to do with him. But there was a third category of people that we saw that responded to Jesus differently than the other two. And this is the only right response to the person of Jesus, to the one that is king, and that is to receive him, to receive him for who he is, to accept him, for who he is, to trust in him and to bow in submission to him as your king and as your Lord over your life. And we have seen that in the lives of the disciples. Their faith may be shaky. They may falter and fail. And yet there is this desire in them that Jesus would be their Lord. And here as we enter into the very last few verses of Matthew, we see out of those three responses to Jesus, the first two, the ones who push him away and the one who, ones who reject him outright seeking to destroy him, they fade from the story. They're no longer mentioned. They are not in the scene in the last of the story. They completely fade. And the ones that remain are those who have surrendered to Jesus, the disciples, the ones who have made him Lord of their lives. So as Matthew closes his testimony of Jesus, he closes in the same way that he opened. We're going to see as we look at the text tonight that everything he's been telling us all along is summed up in his closing. Jesus is the king, and he, ha- and he is king over a kingdom of all nations, and all our allegiance is due to him. So let's begin and look at Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. There are eleven disciples. And this reminds us um, of the sadness of what has happened over the last few weeks in our study. They once were twelve, but now they are eleven. Twelve was their complete number. But one of them had betrayed Jesus, and one of them had walked away. One of them had had not repented unto life and wound up taking his own life. And so now their number was incomplete. It was imperfect number. But this is just serves as a reminder to us that God is using imperfect and fallible people to do his perfect work. That even though they're not a perfect number of 12 at this point in time, just a reminder to us that God still uses the imperfect and the fallible. Thank the Lord for that, because we're all in that same place. He would have nobody to use if he didn't use imperfect, infallible people. 
And so Jesus had sent word to the disciples, we saw that last week through the women, that they were to go to Galilee, to this mountain, and Jesus would meet them there. And so we see that the disciples have done that. They've gone and made the journey to Galilee. We remember that's not like a 20-minute drive down the road. That's a couple days' journey. And so they, they made their way to an undisclosed location. We don't know what mountain that they went to, but they're in a mountain in Galilee, and they're awaiting the Lord to come to them. And I want to remind us of the, la- the first time, not the last time, but the first time we saw the disciples gather with Jesus on a mountain in Galilee. And that was all the way back at the beginning of our study in, in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus gathered the, went up into a mountain and he gathered his disciples around him and he began to teach them. And he taught them the Sermon on the Mount. And I think we're seeing a, a comparison here to that time, that Sermon on the Mount, to this sermon that he's given to them. It's much shorter. He's giving them a command. He's, giving them a, he's commissioning them. Both of these are on mountains in Galilee. The first Sermon on the Mount ends with a statement about Jesus' authority. As the people had listened and the disciples had listened to him preach to them, they were just amazed that he spoke as one with authority. But now here on this mountain at the end of his ministry, it begins with a statement telling us of Jesus' authority. In the first scene that we saw on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, the focus was inward. He was teaching about the inward character of a disciple and how a disciple is made through listening and obeying all that Jesus commanded them. And now here on this mountain, we see Jesus' focus turned outward now. That these disciples were to make disciples by now teaching others to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And so on this mountain, they waited Jesus in obedience to him for him to come. And verse 17 continues on and it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. What an interesting statement that is. They see Jesus coming to them. He must be a little bit a ways off because in the next phrase it says that Jesus came closer. He came to them. But right now they're seeing him. And when they see him, they fall and worship him because they know who he is. They know he is God. And yet, even as they worship him, even as they're in that place of worship, there is some who are doubting. Well, how can this be? But the word that's used there for doubt is the Greek word distazo. It doesn't mean a firmed and fixed unbelief. It does not mean that. Rather, that word means a state of uncertainty or hesitancy. They're feeling this uncertainty in their hearts. So much has happened over the past few days for them. He was dead and now he's, they're hearing he's alive and it's like, how can this be? How do I understand what I'm seeing? How do I reconcile what I'm seeing. It's the same word that was used when Peter was walking on the water and he, he, he saw Jesus and then all of a sudden he became aware of the storms and his circumstances and he began to sink. His faith began to, to get shaky and he began to doubt. That's the same word that's used. There's this uncertainty. It's not that he doesn't, they don't believe. It's not that they're fixed against him. It's just that there's uncertainty and hesitancy in their heart. And yet, I'm struck that in spite of that, they can still worship. They can still worship. And they still worship him. 
I want us to also notice what happens next. Because I believe what happens next is the solution to uncertainty and hesitancy and doubt that we struggle with, all of us, in our faith. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came, and he said to them, and he begins to speak to them. Jesus came to them. He spoke to them. He gave them a command. His word came to them. And I don't think it's accidental that Matthew has put into his text this state of turmoil that their soul is in because I think that we can all identify with them just a little bit. We believe, but there is a level of unbelief that we all struggle with still, especially as life gets confusing and difficult. And so we want to encourage us because I think the scripture encourages us to take those doubts and take those uncertainties to Jesus, to the one who can alleviate those doubts. His word will alleviate those doubts because here they are doubting what they're seeing and then Jesus comes closer and he speaks to them and he talks to them about who he is. He tells them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him, to Jesus. And as they are with Jesus and listen to his word, I am sure that those doubts begin to diminish and begin to minimize and certainty begins to creep in. I'm certain of that because I know that in my own struggle with doubt, and I have struggled with doubt, I have doubted whether the word of God is true. The voice of Satan has crept into my ear saying, did God really say? He is just not a creative creature. He uses the same tactics on us as he did on Adam and Eve. And so he puts that doubt into our hearts, even as believers, that we begin to wonder, is this really God's word? Does it really say what I think it says? Does it really mean what I think it means? And so many times when people start to entertain those doubts, those doubts creep into their minds, there's uncertainty and there's hesitancy in their hearts. They don't move toward Christ and toward his word, but away from Christ and away from his word to try to find answers for their doubt in other human sources, which tend to lead them away further from the truth. And so I think what we ought to see here um, in their doubt is that Jesus and his word are the solution and the antidote for the struggles that we feel, the doubts that we experience. Take your doubts to the word of God, praying in your spirit to the Lord to open your eyes and to help you to see and to give you the faith to believe, to remove from you the uncertainty and the hesitancy that you feel in your heart and keep diving in deeper and deeper into the word when those moments come and they will come and they will come. So let's continue on. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. As we have traveled with Matthew, he has given us glimpses of the authority of Jesus. We have seen his authority on display as he taught the scriptures with accuracy and effectively, with authority. He amazed people with his handling of the word of God. He did it with authority because he, in truth, is the author. He was the author. He knew exactly what the word of God said. And so he taught with authority. 
We saw that he had authority as he would forgive people's sins. We saw his authority as he healed the sick and opened the eyes of the blind, as he walked on water, as he calmed the storms with just his word. We saw his authority as he fed and satisfied the multitudes in the wildernesses. We saw his authority as he raised the dead to life. And we saw his authority as demons fled at his command. But Jesus doesn't just have a little bit of authority. He doesn't just have some authority. We are told in his word he has all authority in heaven and earth. That means all authority everywhere. There is no authority that he does not have. And there is no sphere in which he does not have authority in. Jesus has all authority because God has all authority and Jesus is God. This is a proclamation of Jesus' deity. Only God has this authority. Only God has sovereignty over all of his creation. And Jesus is God. He has authority in the galaxies, the ones we know about and the ones that have not even been discovered yet. He has authority in heaven. He has authority on earth. There is no sphere, no nation, I know that's hard to believe, no land where Jesus does not have authority. He has authority in the sea and under the sea and over the sea. He has authority in the mountains and under the mountains and over the mountains. He has authority in the city and in the rural, com rural communities. He has authority over every creature, man, and beast. And sometimes I will admit, actually for me most times, as I listen to the news and I watch the chaos around me, it is so easy to forget this most profound truth that Jesus Christ has all authority today. Today. But we need to know, we need to remember this truth. We need to believe it. We need to rest in it. That all of the chaos that we are experiencing in our world today falls under the very watchful, loving eye of King Jesus and his authority. Nothing is out of his control and everything that is happening, as chaotic as it is for us, is going perfectly according to his plan. And we need to remember that. That gives us peace when we remember that Jesus has all authority. Take comfort in this truth that comes out of the mouth of Jesus that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and he is in control. And it is from this rightful position of authority, his rightful role as king, that he commissions his disciples. To commission means to give a command or to give an order. He's giving them their marching orders, if you will. And Jesus is the one who has all authority, is now commanding through his authority his disciples. Now, we know within the context that we're looking at that he's speaking specifically in that moment in time to those 11 men, to those 11 disciples who would become his apostles, who would become the foundation of the church. So he is commanding them and saying, this is your mission. This is what you are called to do. But he's not just speaking to them. This is not just for those 11. 
Those 11 became the foundation of the church. They became the, church, the foundation for whom Christ was building his church. They began the work. He sent them to do this. And so when we see this great commission, this great command from Jesus, we understand that that was, that was their mission, but it's also the mission of the church. The church. So the primary f- mission and focus in the world today is to make disciples who make disciples. And not only is it just for those 11 and for the church, but the church is made up of individuals like you and I. We're called disciples too. And each one of us, as we sit here under the, under the word of God, are being called by God to make our primary focus and our primary mission and the primary reason that we're here is also to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So we're going to be talking about discipleship tonight because that's what Jesus talks about and that's what Matthew talks about. And so let's first understand, we're going to talk about um, how we make disciples, and who is, we're supposed to reach. But I want to first remind us of what a disciple is. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who has responded to the revelation of Jesus in submission to his lordship. It is one who, in the words of Jesus, in John chapter 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in the words of Jesus, a disciple is someone who has first and foremost been born again. He went on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and, of, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So unless we're born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God, nor can we enter it. So something miraculous needs to happen first. Something needs to happen to us. We need to be born. We need to become alive. And just like when a little baby is born into this world, they had nothing to do with their birth. We have nothing to do with our new birth. The Spirit comes and goes as it wills. And it's the Spirit who breathes life into the human soul and so that their eyes are opened and they can begin to see. They see the kingdom of God and they begin to hear preaching and and see the word of God and begin to understand. And that understanding comes because the Spirit is breathing life into them so that they can see and hear. They can see the kingdom of God and it begins to make sense to them. And they can see the king of the kingdom and he begins to be something that they're drawn to. And then they begin to see and understand the weight of their sin. And that weight of their sin in light of the king of the kingdom leads them to a place of repentance. So a disciple is somebody who's been born again, but a disciple is somebody who has then repented. Jesus, remember Jesus' message, and John, the Baptist message, and then the disciples' messages were all unified. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And so after the new birth, there's this awakening and awareness of our sin. And repentance is a fruit of the new birth. So a repentance we learn throughout this Bible study is a change of direction. It's turning from sin and turning to Jesus and his lordship. It's turning from walking in submission to the flesh, to my own desires, and 
my own agenda and walking in submission to Jesus's commands and Jesus's desires and Jesus's agenda. Repentance is complete and utter change of direction and loyalty of our lives. And Matthew took great pains to show us what repentance looked like throughout his book. It looks like leaving everything to follow Jesus. It looks like leaving your fishing industry like Peter and Andrew. It looks like leaving your family like James and John. It looks like leaving your tax booth like Matthew himself. Now, for some, following Jesus will be a lifetime call into full-time ministry like the, like the disciples, the 12. But that's not the case for all. We're not all called into full-time Christian ministry. But that does not mean that somehow we're excluded from this command. And while we may not literally leave our families in proximity, we may not be literally leaving our businesses or our careers, it does mean that the allegiance of our heart belongs to Jesus. He takes priority. His ways take priority over everything else. What did Jesus say? How did Jesus put it? Unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, and come after me, you're not worthy of my kingdom. He's not literally calling people to hate their family. What he's trying to show through hyperbole is our loyalty and allegiance to Jesus is so great that it will look like our hatred to our family in comparison to that. Our loyalty is to be to him. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a Christian. Notice what is assumed in this, this book of the Bible, that there are not two levels of Christianity. There are not, there's not a generic Christian that made a confession of faith but continues to live life as he sees fit. And then there's the super level Christian, the ones that are the disciples who leave it all behind for Jesus. But both are Christians. That is taught nowhere in the Bible. That is not in scripture. All Christians are disciples. And all disciples give all allegiance to their king. So when Jesus, the one with all authority, commands these 11 to go and make disciples, this is exactly what they did. So let's look closely at what they were commissioned to do. The church is commissioned to do and what we as individuals are commissioned to do. Look at verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the command is this. Make disciples of all nations. Notice we're making disciples. We're not making converts. We are not being called to go out into the world to make converts, to gather for ourselves confessions of faith. This is disciple-making. Now, evangelism, sharing the gospel, is included and is absolutely a part of making disciples. We all have to be born again. We all grow in our faith. We all grow in Jesus Christ through the gospel message. So there is always going to be evangelism. There's always going to be gospel as part of what it means to make disciples. But we are being called to make disciples. And that's a time commitment. And that's intensity and intimacy and relationship that's going to be involved in that. 
The church's primary mission, the disciples' primary mission, is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So we've talked about what a disciple is. Jesus is going to tell us how a disciple is made, but first he tells us who you are making into disciples. And it's all nations. Jesus came primarily to seek the Jews, but what has been hinted at throughout all of Matthew has been the idea that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of all nations. People like the, we saw people like the wise men who came from afar bowing before King Jesus with gifts of gold and myrrh and frankincense. People like the centurion in Matthew 8 and the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who amazed Jesus with the depth of their faith in Jesus. They were Gentile people hinting at Jesus' coming as opening the gate for the Gentiles Gentiles like the soldiers at the cross whose eyes were open to see that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Matthew has been hinting what the Old Testament scripture had been foreshadowing, that God's plan for his people has always been that his people would be from every tongue and every nation and every people group. We saw it in his promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed We saw it as Gentiles throughout the Old Testament were brought into the people of God. Women who were in Jesus' lineage, women like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all Gentiles who were brought into the people of God, hinting at what was greater things to come. And then there's this beautiful psalm, Psalm 87, which, which hints at it as well. It says this, On the holy mountain stands the city he founded, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. This is such a beautiful psalm that's telling us that in the city that God loves, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Zion, people are being drawn to it. People are being drawn to the city of God, and they are, they are people from every nation. These are these, these Rahab and Babylon. These are Gentile nations, and they're being brought to it. And as people are coming into the city... God is writing in the books, this one was born in Zion. This one was born in Zion. This one was born in Zion. And this is such a beautiful thing for all of us Gentiles sitting in the room, that it will be said of us that you were born in Zion. You were born in Zion. This one was born in Zion because of Jesus and because Jesus opened the way for all nations and all tribes to come in. This is what the New Testament reveals to us as was the great mystery of the Old Testament. In Ephesians 3, it says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What seems like commonplace news to us was radical news back then to them. And I hope that we don't lose the wonder of this, that we have been included as co-heirs in the promises of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is coming a day, 
that we will see and we will be a part of what we are given a glimpse of in Revelation 7-9. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful scene that we all have to look forward to. But this scene is a result of obedience to the Great Commission. This scene is the end result of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew 24, verse 14, when he said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world, will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so a result, the who, and a result is a kingdom that is going to be filled with all peoples as these disciples and as the church and as you and I are walking in obedience to Jesus's command. So that's the who. Let's look at the how. Jesus tells them how to make disciples and it involves three action words. Go, baptize, and teach. Let's look at go first. Go therefore, he says. We're we're not just going, but going therefore. Therefore points us back to the one who has all authority in heaven and in earth. And in light of the one who is commissioning us, and in light of all of his authority, we go. We go in his authority. We go in his power. If he is commissioning us for so great a task, he will empower us by his authority. He will sustain us. He will... Um, give us the abilities to perform all that he's calling us to do. He will equip us with his authority. So we don't just go willy-nilly on our own. We are going in the authority of the king of the universe. So we go, therefore. We go in his authority. And we go, meaning we have to move. It's an action word. We have to do something. We have to get up. We have to move off of our couches. And notice there's no, like, um, just a certain group of people that are included here. This is not just for the extroverts. This is just not for the missionaries. This is not not just for the full-time ministers. This is not for um, pastors, just for pastors. This is for everybody. Because we're going in his power, we have no excuses This is for all of us. And so he's telling it that we're going to have to get up. We're going to have to go. Meaning he is sending you and he is equipping you and he's empowering you to go. We have to move. And some people, like we talked about earlier as when we were talking about what a disciple is, some people are going to be full-time in ministry. Some people will literally get up and go and cross the seas and become missionaries. But that's not for everybody. You can also see this as as you go. As you go, make disciples. So that means in the life that you live right now, whatever that looks like, wherever that is, whether that's at work or at home, wherever you go, the grocery store, the doctor's office, the dentist chair, 
anywhere. Your whole life is on mission. Our whole lives, no matter where God takes us, what circumstances come in our lives that take us to a place, as you go, make disciples. That puts to me in mind Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, um, in the greatest commandment in that book, in the Shema, listen to these words and see if you can hear some similarities in what Jesus is saying here. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you hear some echoes of the Shema in Jesus' commandment in his commission? In making disciples, as you go, as you walk on the road, as you sit and as you sleep, he's just basically saying, whatever it is you're doing, be teaching my commands. Whatever you do. So we are to go. We are to move as we go. That's our family. That's our children. That's our grandchildren. That's our nieces, our nephews, our friends. The little people that are in our church, the teenagers that are in our churches, the neighborhood, as you go. Next week, I get the privilege of moving from being a full-time disciple maker in the church to a full-time disciple maker in my, with my grandchildren. And that's just as important and just as valuable to be discipling the little ones into the faith, teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. The second thing we are to do in making disciples is to baptize them. Baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. First thing we notice right away is the disciple will be baptized. Jesus has commanded it. It's the first act of obedience on the part of a new Christian. But it's not just that they will be baptized. There is a very specific baptism. Jesus is very clear how we're to do this. We are baptizing converts in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is revealing, he's he's pulling back the curtain, if you will, into heaven and helping us to see who the God of the Bible is. The Lord our God is one. He is one God. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's a singular name. And yet, this one God, the Lord our God, has three persons. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. This is what we call the Trinity. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but Trinity is in the Bible. Because our God is triune. He is one being, He is one God, but there are three distinct persons. All are God all share the same character and nature, different roles and functions. It is a mystery that we cannot wrap our heads around. I cannot understand it. It goes beyond my human ability to understand. But isn't that who God is? Is he not beyond us? Scripture teaches us that God is not like us. We spend a lot of time trying to kind of understand and fit him into something that is understandable instead of just receiving him for who he is. He is beyond our ability to understand. He is beyond our ability to grasp. But he is who he has revealed himself to be. 
And to be a Christian is to believe in the triunity of God, to believe in the Father, to believe in the Son, and to believe in the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to be baptized into the name, into not a generic name for God, not a general sense of God, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to identify with this God, to say, I want to bear his name on me. That is what we are doing when we are being baptized. But why does Jesus command us to baptize? Why does he command us to be baptized and to baptize? Well, to be baptized is to be a public event. It's something that we're to do in front of the church, in front of the community of believers. It, is a, it gives us a tangible, visible reality to show us what is invisibly going on in salvation. It's something visible that's showing an invisible reality. It shows that we've been cleansed from our sin and regenerated by the Holy Spirit when we're washed in the water. It doesn't literally wash away our sins. It doesn't save us, but it's revealing, it's showing what God is at work doing in us. It's symbolically showing this. And it shows that we've been united to Jesus by having been buried with Christ in his death and raised to newness of life. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says it beautifully. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we're taken down under the waters of baptism, lifted back up again, there's an identification that we are making, that we are dying to the old self, dying and then being raised to newness of life. It is an outward manifestation, a visible manifestation of what God is doing in saving his people. It's a testimony. It's a declaration. So as we make disciples, we are going, we are, dis- we are baptizing, and the third thing Jesus tells us, that we are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now the word for observe means to obey. The NIV version says teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And this is where we learn that discipleship is a long-term commitment proposition here. This is not in and out quick. (laughs) This is a long-term commitment. We have to um, invest in people's lives. This is a lifetime. We are lifetime, lifelong disciples ourselves, and we will always be discipling others. Jesus' commands, so we're to teach others commands, the commands of Jesus. Disciple-making is a teaching, learning proposition. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are made whole as we, and healed from our sins, and we are made like Christ as we are being transformed through the word of God, washed by his word. And so Jesus is teaching how to make disciples by teaching us that we are to teach others all that he commanded. And so what has he commanded us? Well, we have his commands preserved for us in the Gospels. We have the Sermon on the Mount and other messages that he taught us. We have to teach the Gospels. But Jesus' commands have also been preserved for us through the Apostles. It was through the apostles that he, be, he, he began to build his church. 
And when the apostles wrote the New Testament, they were writing inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus' commands are preserved through the writings of the the apostles. So Jesus' commands, the New Testament, are Jesus' commands. We are to be taught the New Testament. So we have to learn the Gospels, and we have to teach the Gospels, and we learn the commands as we learn and study the New Testament. But Jesus' commands have also been preserved for us in the Old Testament scripture, the Law and the Prophets. Jesus himself, when he speaks of the Old Testament, says it is the Word of God. And as Jesus is God, then the Word of God is his Word as well. And so we teach In our disciple-making process, the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the New Testament, the whole counsel of the Word of God is what Jesus is commanding us to teach. This is a part of what discipleship is. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The whole scripture, all of it, are the commands of Jesus that we are to be teaching as we go, as we make disciples. And then finally, the last thing that Jesus says, the last thing that Matthew records, the exclamation point at the end of this book are these words, and behold. Now we know when we see the word behold that we're supposed to stop, right? We're supposed to stop and pay attention because we're supposed to focus in on something here. Behold is there, kind of like to take our face in his hands and say, look, look at this. So behold, ladies, look carefully what Jesus is saying. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He has just given this great commandment that is insurmountable, it's impossible task to go into all the world, to make disciples of all nations, so that around the throne in heaven will be all these myriads of people singing, salvation belongs to our God. We go in his power, but he says, I'm not sending you alone. I'm going with you. Matthew began his gospel by introducing us to Jesus, the infant born. And he says, he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And here in the last sentence, Jesus says to us, I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I will go with you. Always I am with you to the end of the age. All the places that you go, All of them. There is no place that you will go that he will not be with you if you are his disciple. All of the places that you go, all of the things that you do, he will be with you. All of the circumstances of your life, no matter what comes your way, no matter how crazy it gets, I will be with you. All of the days of your life. There's not a day that you're going to wake up and he's not going to be with you. Do you know how I know that? I don't know that because I feel it. I know that because he says it. 
See, there are days that I do wake up and I don't feel like he's with me. There are days I feel like I've been abandoned by him. But his word says, he says, I am with you always, all the days, to the end of the age, all the days, whether you feel it or whether you don't. He is with you. And what happens when we get to the end? To the end of the age, to the end of our days, we will be with him literally, physically, in his presence, face to face, for all eternity. Behold, I am with you always, he said, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word, your word. We thank you, Lord, for this purpose that you've given to each one of us to go out and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We thank you that we go in your authority. We thank you for your clear instructions on how to do it. It's not that complicated, Lord, but most of all, we thank you that we don't go alone, that you go with us, you promise, you are faithful to your word. Jesus, you said in your word that you would be crucified, buried, and would rise again, and this is true. This happened. Everything that you have ever said has happened and is true, and so we know that we can rest on the promise that you have said at the end of this book that you will be with us always. Help us to rest in that. Help us to believe that. Give us the faith to believe that. Help us to have the eyes to see that you are faithful to your word. And I pray that we would go in that knowledge and in that power and in that strength. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.